Once, let's see, one summer, uh, my junior high year, had the chance to spend a whole week. It was great. I had a chance to spend a whole week at summer camp. Those of you who have been to summer camp, you know how wonderful it can be. Um, at our particular summer camp in Southern California, all of the different cabins were named after a Native American tribe. And the cabin that I was in was the Iroquois cabin. And I really liked that name Iroquois because when I thought of Iroquois, I thought of these brave warriors on horseback that could just go out into the woods and be self-sufficient and take care of themselves and it just seemed like such a noble wonderful thing and I really liked that because even though I was in junior high and I was young I wanted to be brave and I wanted to be self-sufficient I wanted to be courageous and fearless Uh, so I I really liked the idea that I was like yeah I'm in the Iroquois cabin and that's what we are we're brave we're fearless We're self-sufficient. Well, something happened that week at summer camp that helped me to realize that I was anything but brave and fearless and self-sufficient. In the cabin, I had one of the coveted top bunks. And the way they built these top bunks was to prevent any restless sleepers from falling out. And so they had these wooden guards. uh, They had uh, like a plank of wood on each side. So, you know, if you rolled over, you'd, you'd bump up against that wooden, um, that, that wooden plank, and it'd keep you from falling out. And so that's, that's, that's where I was sleeping. I was up in my, my top bunk one evening, and about the middle of the night, I noticed something really strange happening. I was sleeping really well, but then I woke up because I was bumping up against that wooden railing, just bumping up against it, bumping up against it. And I wasn't bumping myself up against it. Boom, boom, boom. And I was, as, just as I was trying to figure out what in the world is going on, why am I getting bumped up against this railing, my fearless counselor in the Iroquois cabin yelled, earthquake, get down. And so we scrambled down, and my heart is pounding, and it's no small earthquake. I mean, later we found out that it damaged roads, it damaged buildings. It was a, it was a pretty big earthquake. And, and we're huddling together, and in that moment, we felt our need of God. We were scared. But as you know, earthquakes come, and, and then they go. And we're, oh, our heart is pounding, and we're, we're, we're feeling a little more calm. And then we started to hear a rumbling off in the distance. And a series of aftershocks started to come through. The camp was situated in such a place that um, there was these valleys, and, and, and the earthquake, we, would, we could actually hear it hit us before it came. And so the rumble would happen to get bigger and bigger and louder and louder, and then, it, and then our cabin would shake again. And so... During that night, so we didn't know. We could hear it coming. We didn't know how much it would, you know, how much damage it would cause. And so as we all huddled together, we could hear it. We could anticipate these aftershocks coming. We were legitimately scared to death. (laughs) We didn't know what was going to happen. There was this uncertainty. And that night in the Iroquois cabin, the campers became very spiritual. We were praying We were confessing sins. We didn't care what our friends thought about us, praying. 
We were scared. We thought we might die. And so we were giving our lives over to God. And it was, it was just this, this really spiritual experience. And genuinely, we, I believe God showed up in that moment. He was there. Like, he gave us peace. And, and thankfully, he got us through that really scary time. Everyone made it through fine. There was no one that was hurt. And I'm re- really grateful for that. Well, today, chances are life is pretty good for you. You're here right? We're, we're well fed. We, we, we're all dressed. We have a roof over our head. And it's easy to think, it's easy to get lulled into this idea that I would argue is a flat-out lie, that we are indeed self-sufficient, that we really don't need God that much, that we're really quite okay. I would argue this morning that the reality is, in this moment, even though we're, we might be quite comfortable here and everything might seem quite all right, the reality is, the spiritual reality, is that we are in a condition of desperate need. We, every moment, are in a spiritual crisis because we are not spiritual. We cannot conjure up spirituality on our own, and death is the reality for all of us unless we have a God who saves us. We are in desperate need. That's, that's our reality. Well, as, as we've been talking about already, we, we're in this sermon series called Teach Us to Pray. Teach Us to Pray. We're looking at what the Bible has to say about this. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. And what we're going to focus on today is the, te- the teaching of Jesus on, on how he calls us to pray. You see, it's so easy to become spiritual when we're in these crises, Right? When we think, if you've been in an experience where you thought you were legitimately going to die, it's easy to be turning to God and, and seeking after him. But how do we maintain that kind of connection on a regular day-to-day basis? How do we maintain a connection with God? Jesus' teaching, he gives us, we're going to look at a teaching in the Bible that shows us how we can do that, how we can seek after God and experience him in a very real way whenever we pray. And it shows us how we can find the motivation that we need. God is always there. It's not his fault that we're not connecting with him. Oftentimes we lack the motivation. And so in this teaching that we're going to look at in the Bible, we're going to see that, how God helps us to, shows us how we can stay motivated to be connected to him. Okay, the title of the message this morning is Shameless Audacity. And before we open the Bible, I want to just pause and recognize the Holy Spirit, as our teacher this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we're coming to you with this request. We read it in the scriptures that you would teach us how to pray. We often know that we need to pray more, and we don't. So I ask God that you would speak to us, that we would hear you, that we would receive words of life, the teaching that we desperately need that we might have a spiritual experience with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. Last week, we looked at the first verses of Luke chapter 11, and we saw how one day the disciples came to Jesus, and they found him praying. And in that day, he most likely would have been praying out loud, even though he was praying alone. 
They listen to him, this incredible prayer, and they're so inspired by Jesus' experience in prayer, this reflection of heaven upon his face, that they make this request, Lord, teach us to pray. And he goes on and he does. He teaches them the words of prayer. We describe this prayer as the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, Jesus teaches us to address God in a very special way, a very intimate, close way. He tells us to call God Father. And as, as the children of God, we get to, to go to God and, and know that he loves us and he cares for us because he's a good father. He's a loving father. Now, in verses 5 through 8, he teaches us to relate to God as in, in different terms. He expands our experience of prayer. We can call him our father, but there's, there's more to it as well. He expands this relationship that we have with God and teaches us to relate to, relate to God as a friend. Now, when we, when we relate to our friends... Chances are we use nice language. We speak to them in kind, nice ways. And that's, and that's good. That's, a, that's an important part of, of being a friend. But there's another part, because you can talk to anyone like that, right? But there's something that only friends can do, and that is take liberties. We can take liberties with a friend. In other words, if we're in a crisis, if we really need help, we can inconvenience our friends and they're okay with that. In fact, that is a sign of a good friend, that you can reach out to them at an inconvenient time and bother them and they're good with it. In fact, if that person is a really good friend and you're needing their help, you're in a crisis situation and you don't say anything, if they're a really good friend, chances are they're going to be upset. Hey, why didn't you say something? I would have come and helped. I would have dropped what I was doing. I would have left work had I only known. Tell, tell me next time. Hey, because after all, we are friends. Yeah, that's what friends are able to do. Friends are able to take liberties with each other. And so here in Jesus' teaching, he teaches us how to talk to God. Like, okay, we understand how to talk to people. How do we talk to God as a friend? How do we take liberties with God? And to help us understand this, Jesus gets his listeners. He's talking to his disciples here in Luke 11. And he's also talking to us. And he invites his listeners, that's you and I, to imagine that we are in a desperate situation. We're in a situation of desperate need. Look at what it says in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 8. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight. Notice what time it is. You go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. Verse 7, and suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. Can anyone relate to that? Don't bother me. It's midnight. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, Jesus says, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship— Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So Jesus' story, in order for us to understand this, because he's really asking us to put ourselves in the story, he's speaking to you. In order for us to understand this, we got to recognize that our day, our culture, our community here is very different from what he's talking about here. So we have to imagine going back 
to the scenario that Jesus is describing here. This, and he's talking about a little village, a very tiny village. This village is so small that there are no stores. There's no food for less that's open at midnight. There's nothing like that. There are no stores where he can go to. It's a small village. And if you've ever lived in a small community, you know in small communities, people are up in each, up in each other's business. Right? They know what's going on with everybody else. And this village is so small that people know who's got food and who doesn't have food. (laughs) So picture yourself in this little tiny village, humble village, and at midnight, a friend comes to visit you. Now, something that is helpful to understand is that in this area of the world, it gets really hot during the day. And so it was very much a common practice for people to travel at night, to travel in the evening, in the cool hours of the day, to be able to avoid the heat and not faint because, of, because it was so hot outside. And so it was not uncommon for people to arrive at their destination at very late hours. And so you're in this village, there's no place to buy bread, you don't have any bread, bread is baked in the morning, and at midnight a friend comes to visit you. Something else we need to understand about Jesus' culture is that in the first century Jewish culture, hospitality was a sacred obligation. Now today if someone came at midnight, we'd be like, really? Right? Um, but we'd probably let them in, and maybe the next thing that we would do is, is say, okay, we were going to be really hospitable. We say, okay, here's your bed. In the morning, I'll make you breakfast. It's not, it was not that way in this culture here. In this culture, it was a sacred obligation to show hospitality. And the way in which they showed hospitality, one of the ways, was to welcome their guest, their honored guest, with some fresh bread. Perhaps you might have some half-eaten bread in your house. That would not do. There was a sacred obligation to offer them hospitality, show them and and give them some some fresh bread. Now, the bread that they would have made would have been these little loaves of bread, little tiny, small rolls. And so the minimum offering that showed hospitality would have been about three small loaves of bread. So that's why Jesus says you would go and you would ask for three loaves of bread. This, this would have been the minimum gesture of hospitality. And if they did not fulfill this sacred obligation to show hospitality at any moment in which hospitality was required, even if that was the middle of the night, then it would bring shame upon them, and it would actually bring shame upon their entire village. Now, it's, it's kind of tough for us to understand, some of us, I should say, to understand this concept of shame. Because in, in Western culture, shame is bad, but, you know, you can do some shameful things and almost laugh it off. Some people are okay with it. In the Eastern culture, in this honor-shame culture, shame was the worst thing ever. To be shamed was, was just terrible. There was, there was no worse thing that you could do than to bring shame upon yourself and shame upon your family. Shame was worse than death. It would be better to die than to bring shame upon yourself. So I say that so that we can kind of feel the urgency that is here in this story. So Jesus is saying, imagine that a friend comes to you at midnight, this really inconvenient time. You didn't know they were coming. Obviously, there are no cell phones and way to communicate. Shows up at midnight. 
And in your culture, you have this sacred obligation to offer them at least three fresh loaves of bread. But you've got nothing. And if you don't come up with something, then it's shame on you, and it's shame on your culture. There's no worse outcome. So feel the urgency that Jesus is talking about here. And with this urgency, you only have two options. Those two options are find bread or keep looking. You've got to provide some kind of bread for your, for your, ho- for your, for your guest, your honored guest. As a host, you've got to do this. And Jesus is saying that this dynamic, this dynamic of urgency, of having to meet a need that you are completely incapable of meeting, this is his teaching on prayer. This is what prayer is like. It's having a need that is urgent, absolutely urgent. It's do or die. And you have no capacity to meet that need. Well, Jesus' teaching on prayer is certainly not flattering about us. We would like to think ourselves as well-off spiritually, as capable, as self-sufficient, as able to provide at least some good things in our life, right? But Jesus teaches, he's basically saying that we, spiritually speaking, we do not have what it takes spiritually. That in and of ourselves, we are not able to offer any good thing, even on, a, even on, the, on the minimum we cannot even make, make, meet spiritual minimums in our life on our own. And so we are left with one option, and that is to go out and find what we desperately need. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Well, as unpleasant as it might be to think of ourselves as spiritually empty, as, as spiritually unable to do what it takes, as spiritually in desperate need, as unpleasant as that might be to just let that reality sink in and say, I have nothing good to offer. The truth is, if someone is completely inadequate and does not know it, they are in real trouble. This is how people die. Perhaps you know how people die with hypothermia. Perhaps you're aware of that. When someone is out in the snow, out in a cold, cold area, and they have inadequate clothing, and their body is not able to generate enough heat to to stay well, they, they start to get really cold. And it's painful at first. But what happens after a while? Like when your fingers get really cold, after a while, if they remain cold and you, don't, you have inadequate clothing, your, your, your gloves aren't working, what happens to your fingers? What happens to your toes? You get numb. And I'm thankful that I haven't been in this place, but, but what, what happens as people continue to get colder and colder, if they're not able to get to a place where they can warm up, People have reported when they go towards hypothermia that they actually start to get sleepy. They start to get tired. And some people, in extreme cases, even feel kind of warm. It's been reported. So in that place, if someone were to say, you know, I'm kind of sleepy and I feel kind of warm, maybe I'll just lay down and take a nap. 
they're going to be in real trouble. In fact, that's probably going to be the last thing that they do unless someone saves them. So someone with an understanding of hypothermia is going to say, whoa, wait a second, I'm feeling sleepy, I'm feeling kind of warm here. They are going to do, if they understand that they are numb, what they're going to do is they're going to do whatever it takes in order to to keep moving, in order to keep moving their arms and, and, and generate some kind of heat. They're going to do whatever it takes in order to live. Jesus teaches us to pray like our life depends upon it. Because the reality is is that we can be spiritually numb too. We can be desperate for God and not even know it. We might say, you know what? I just feel like taking a nap. Everything's fine. We can be completely unaware of our spiritual need. Not because it doesn't exist, but because we are numb. And so Jesus' teaching on prayer, it, he tells us this is the attitude that we enter into prayer. It's as a desperate person who needs something. They need to provide for someone else. They're in desperate need, but they do not have what it takes. It's a situation of desperate need. And so Jesus basically tells us to pray as if our life depends upon it. Now, he's not teaching us to pray this way because he likes to see us grovel. God doesn't get any pleasure off of us just pleading with him, and it's not a matter of convincing him to bless us. God wants to bless us. He doesn't need for us to be desperate. We need to realize that we are desperate. Because unless we are willing to do whatever it takes for our needs to be met, then our needs, our spiritual needs, will not get met. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29, verse 13. We're going to come back to Luke 11, um, but please go with me to Jeremiah 29 and verse 13. Here, this is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah to exiles in Babylon because the people of Israel turned their backs on God and started worshiping other idols and supplementing their worship of God with idols. When When the nation of Babylon came to take them captive, they were helpless. They had rejected God, and on their own, they didn't have what it took to defend them, and so they were taken captive, and Jeremiah is writing to them in exile. They're discouraged. By all appearances, it seems very much hopeless. They are, they are far, far away from their home in Jerusalem, in Babylon, and Jeremiah wants them to know that God has not turned his back on them. He says that God's going to bring you back, and he says that you're going to pray to him, and he's going to answer And look at what he says in verse 13 of Jeremiah 29. This is the words of God to us. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'd like for you to look at that verse closely and notice who is finding who. God knows exactly where we are. God does not need us to pray so that he will, oh, there you are. I kind of lost you for a moment. He knows exactly where we are. It's not God finding us. He says you will find God when you seek him with all your heart. This is who needs to do the finding. We need to find God. God knows exactly where we are, but when we find, we we only find God when we seek after him with all our heart. It's not because he hides himself. It's not because he keeps himself from being found. It's because we are not able to find him unless we do it 100%. 
many of us, myself included, can fall into the trap of pursuing God in a half-hearted way. Oftentimes, our prayers speak for myself. Oftentimes, my prayers can be half-hearted. I say it because I always say it. I say it because I know I should. And as a result, we can miss out on God. The criteria for finding God in prayer is not a 95% pursuit of him. He says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So no wonder we miss out on a spiritual experience. No wonder we are spiritually needy. If our pursuit of God is half-hearted, he says, you're not going to find me. We need to be like the person in the story that Jesus is talking about in Luke 11. This desperation, going out at midnight and knocking on someone's door. What are you doing? Hey, it doesn't matter because this is all I am after. I can't stay home. There's one thing and I'm going to pursue it with everything I've got, whether I feel that need or not. When we seek God with all our heart, we're like this person, begging for bread, looking and not stopping until we find it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 7, it's very interesting what this friend says. You go to the, the friend's house and you knock, and the friend says this, don't bother me. Don't bother me. Now, to this friend's credit, He's not just being lazy. He's not just being difficult. It was a legitimate inconvenience for him. And he gives some of the reasons there in verse 7. He says, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. Now, something else that's helpful for us to picture is that this was probably a one-room house, very humble, simple dwelling. And in these homes, there would be an elevated raised bed in one part of the room. And in that bed, dad and mom and children would all sleep together. Parents with young children, you know what it's like when they wake up, right? When they sleep, it's just wonderful, (laughs) wonderful, right? You ring someone's doorbell, and they're like, they were asleep. This person is making a legitimate statement. It would legitimately be inconvenient for him to get up Because in getting up, he probably would have woken up his wife, which may not have been a good thing, and probably would have woken up his children. In addition to that, these humble, simple homes uh, next to the raised bed where they all would have been, often they kept their animals in there. Goats, sheep, I don't know what else. And so in getting up out of bed, it would have legitimately been inconvenient. Waking up children, waking up animals, And to get the door open, it wasn't a simple turn of the knob. These doors were secured with an iron bar, and it would go through several rings. And so in opening that, he was for sure to wake everyone up. So he says, don't bother me. Please go away. And I love what Jesus says. He's like, obviously, you're not going away because this is a desperate situation. Don't bother me. I don't care. (laughs) I'm knocking because we're not going to bring shame upon our village. I, you've got bread. I know you've got it. And so I'm going to keep on knocking. He's in desperate need. And the Bible says that he might not open it up because of friendship, 
but because of your shame, you're not going away. Hey, you might as well get up and give me the bread because your children and your animals are going to get woken up anyway. So you might as well give, give the bread that you have. That's this picture that we see here. But in this story, it's important to know that this friend who says, don't bother me, is not a representation of God. Jesus is not comparing this friend to God. What he's doing is he's contrasting this friend to God. In other words, if shameless audacity will work to get you what you want from your friend, to get what you want from your friend, how much more will God, who longs to bless us, honor shameless audacity and bless us abundantly? How much more will a loving God do that for us? Nowhere in the Bible does God indicate that he is bothered by any one of us crying out to him for help. Nowhere. God is never too busy. God is never sleeping. He's never having a hard time listening. He's never just over us. God is listening and available anytime. Bring the same request as much as you want. God loves to hear it because he is a father and he loves us. And he's also a friend. And he expects for us to come to him and take liberties with him. He cannot be inconvenienced. That's Jesus' point. God tells us himself. We know that God doesn't just tolerate prayer because God tells us himself to call to him. That's what he says in Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Call to me. And God says, I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Notice that God's invitation to pray to him is not limited. He doesn't tell us how many times we can do it. He doesn't tell us when we can do it. He doesn't tell us how to do it. He just says, do it. It's open. Call to him as often, as much as you need. God tells us to call to him. He tells us to pray to him because God has so much that he wants to bless us with. God is a generous God. He's not a stingy God. He wants to bless us in big ways because he knows that we have a desperate need. And when God goes about meeting our needs, he doesn't do it with just the bare minimum. He blesses us abundantly. He's a, he's a giving God. But even though, by the way, do you believe that? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's a giving God. But even though we know that God is a giving God, even though we know that he wants to bless us or we might believe that, the reality is is that it's not easy to pray because it's not easy to admit that we're needy. That's not an easy thing for us to admit. Thankfully, Jesus understands our aversion to prayer. And so built into his teaching here in Luke chapter chapter 11, verses 5 through 8, Built into there is the the reason, the need, the, the motivation that we need in order to pray consistently with shameless audacity. We find it in verse 6. He says, A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. When selfish reasons for prayer fail, God says, There's a higher reason. And that's when you need to help someone else. An amazing example of this is found in the life of George Mueller. 
19th century pastor, very well-known. Perhaps you've heard his, heard his story before. He, was, he, he saw that there was a great need in England to be able to, to minister to orphans. There were all these orphans. They needed care. They needed love. They needed, they needed to be treated well. He wanted to minister to these orphans, but he had no money. And so George Mueller prayed. And God impressed people to give. He had no money for even one orphanage. People gave enough to have five orphanages. And not just to build these orphanages, but George Mueller continued to pray. And people continued to be impressed by God, and they continued to give in all kinds of amazing ways. But I'll show you a picture of, here, here, here's some of the, a picture of the orphanages that were there. They've got them numbered. That's the first one. You can see them, see them there. Running these orphanages, even though they were given to him by God, running these orphanages had its challenges. One year, just before winter, the orphanage right up here in the corner, George Mueller knew that the boiler in that orphanage was old and it, was, you know, it needed some repairs, it needed, it needed some fixing. And he soon discovered, just before winter came, just before the cold wind started to blow, he soon discovered that there was a leak in the boiler, that it needed to be repaired. But it was, it was surrounded by this brick work, this brick wall. And so they couldn't really get in there and see to what extent it needed repair until they took off the wall and, and shut the boiler down and got in there and looked at it. Well, George Mueller was really distressed about this because the cold winds started to blow and the winter, the, the coolness of the winter started to come. And in order to, to address this repair that needed to be addressed, they would have to turn off the boiler, obviously. And it would have to be off for quite some time. If they needed a new boiler, it may take weeks before they could get it. And just to do the brickwork and repair it, it would have taken a long time. There were 300 orphans, 300 children in this particular orphanage that were relying upon the heat from this boiler. Where would he find room for them? And yet, he needed to shut the boiler down in order to fix it. He didn't know what to do. And so... He did what he could. He made an arrangement for a repair company to come. He scheduled a repair to happen in a few days. And, and just then, this cold north wind began to blow. George Mueller realized his inadequacy to meet the need at hand. He loved these children. He wanted to make sure that they were okay. And some of these children were very, very small. He knew that if they didn't have heat, they would really suffer. Perhaps their health would be compromised. And so, realizing his inadequacy, realizing that he had nothing to give to change the weather, nothing to give to, to change the repair process, he decided to pray. And he had two prayer requests. He prayed, God, we need warm weather when it's time to fix this boiler. Would you please change the weather? And then he also prayed, God, we need the work to happen quickly. And he remembered the story of Nehemiah and how they worked and they had a mind to work. And so he prayed that the work, the work crew would come and that they would just have a desire to work and to get it, get it done. Well, the wind, the cold wind continued to blow and, and the, the temperatures began to drop and it became more and more frigid. The day before the, the, the repair was, was to begin, it was cold outside. And George Mueller kept praying. On the day that it that arrived, when the work crew came to, to do the repairs, all of a sudden that day, 
the weather changed. In fact, it was so mild that they didn't even need to turn the boiler on that morning. The crew came, and they began to take down the brickwork, and they looked at it, and they saw that it could be repaired. And so they were, they were working on it. By 8 p.m. that evening, the manager of the repair crew came, and he, and he said, well, you know, the, the men, they, they, they've worked hard all day, and they'll work a little bit more, and then they'll come back in the morning. The foreman heard his boss make that statement to George Mueller, and he stepped up and politely said, Sir, my men and I would like to work all night. And 30 hours after they started the repair, it was completely fixed. The boiler was working, and there was heat just in time for when the weather changed again, and it was needed. I get chills when I read stories like that. How God honors the desperate cry of people who realize their inadequacy. Sometimes we pretend that we've got everything figured out, but when we go to God and recognize just who we are, we are spiritually empty. He responds. And in that place, you see, God's not going to meet us in a place where we are not at. God is at the place of our real experience, that we are genuinely needy. That's where he's at. But if I'm over here and I'm pretending, I don't need to pray. I'm fine. I've got food in the refrigerator. I've got a car that works. I'm good. I've got good health. If I'm over here, God is over there. He's at the reality of my life. This place that is in desperate need, where there are people around me that need my help, and I've got nothing to give them. That's where God is at. And when I'm willing to recognize that and come back to that place and say, God, I've got nothing, it's at that place that he fills me. And that's the place where he fills you. When we feel our inadequacy by the needs of those around us, we see that we cannot meet those needs. It's at that moment that we're inspired to pray with shameless audacity. God brings people into your life. He brings people into my life to reveal my desperate spiritual condition. He gave me children. And I look at myself, I'm like, am I representing, how can I represent God to my children? What chance do I have? I'm going to blow it every time. But as I sit down with my little ones, morning and evening, and open up the Bible and Bible stories, and I'm inspired to pray, God, save my kids. Show your love through me. I am inadequate to represent you to them. But God, I need you to love them through me. God brings people into your life, whether it's children, whether it's friends or neighbors, co-workers. They come and they want to know what you know about the Bible. In that situation, chances are you'll see your inadequacy. Me? Tell, tell them about the Bible. Let's have the pastor. No, no, God's asking you to tell them what you know about him. To pray with someone. To give what you have to them. It's in those moments that we realize our inadequacy, and that's where God tells us we need to be. Because in that place, he's able to fill us. Though you might be tempted to run when you feel your inadequacy, I'd like to invite you to see it as a call to prayer. Most of us know we need to pray more, but doing it is another matter. And so that's why we're beginning this year with 
this thing that we're calling 10 Days of Prayer. We started it on Wednesday, and we're continuing it this evening. You can join an online group. You can join, Arlena's leading out in that. The information is in the newsletter. You can join us in Classroom B. I'm going to be leading out in that tonight at 6 p.m. And just come and pray, pray together. There's something that happens when we pray together. When I know someone is going to be there to pray with me, I have a better chance of showing up. I end up praying more. I end up seeing my real need when I'm praying with other people. Feeling inadequate is uncomfortable, but it's here that we experience Jesus' teaching, and it's here that we pray with shameless audacity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are okay with desperately needy people. Forgive us for acting as if we're fine when the reality is we're just numb. God, may we have the understanding that you give us here in Jesus' teaching. And may we cry out to you with shameless audacity. In Jesus' name, amen.